Hope you have your Bible handy and available as we begin to look at a lesson for the next few moments this morning. Isn't it a wonderful opportunity to be together? We're thankful certainly for this opportunity. Thankful for the ability that was ours yesterday to assemble in the fellowship area down at the Rector Center. We just want to be the kind of Christians that, of course, God would want us to be. And today we're going to give some thought to a lesson I've entitled, A Growing Church. As we begin that lesson, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I hope you'll hold your finger there. We'll be looking at that text in a little bit later in the lesson this morning. But first of all, this introductory slide perhaps will point our mind in the direction of the lesson of our study today. All of us are well aware of the fact that growth is a rather critical, in fact, an oft-mentioned part of the Word of God, isn't it? Not only growth from the perspective of an individual, you and I are admonished, in fact, commanded in light of this, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. In the first epistle to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and following, we are admonished to desire the sincere milk of the Word. Why? That you may grow thereby. Isn't it true then that God looks upon you and I, and He does so with a desire and expectation that we will grow? But that means if we grow individually, our congregation will experience growth. I've listed the book of Acts for a consideration. Acts, you notice chapters 2 through 21, it would appear to me cast a strong spotlight on congregations of the Lord's people, on those missionary journeys that Paul took, highlighting the nature of their explosive growth, the ingredients that led to it. Well, having said all of that, you'll notice the middle of that slide and even from that point onward, Church growth is not something that happens accidentally. It's not as if a congregation just suddenly starts growing without any understanding of the reasoning behind it. It requires some things, and it looks upon us within, with the mind of ingredients toward it. We, of course, here at the Pippin Church, in light of our desire to be what God would have us be, we, of course, are interested in these things. Are we doing what we need to do in order for growth? Let's study about that this morning. And not only from a congregational standpoint, but each and every one of us, you and I can put our name, am I doing this? Am I guilty of this? Well, as we look at them, I've tried to divide the lesson into two parts. First of all, there are some things that are more on the negative side. That is to say, these are things that will make it very difficult for any congregation to grow. We'll look at them first. And then for the second part of the lesson, what are some positive things? These are what we need to be doing in order to ensure and encourage growth. And we'll look at them again second. Again, as we look at these, I hope we'll each be motivated and compelled to give some thought to what's involved in it. Here's the first slide. One of the things that readily might be noted is this and I've listed as number one, a disposition of unloving character. That is to say, a kind of sense, an atmosphere, if you please, in which one readily recognizes that that matter of love highlighted in the New Testament is not there. It's absent. Let's spend just a few moments and give some thought to that point. 
every one of us understand that when Jesus built the church, when He founded this precious body of His, this organization, the ecclesia, He did so with the marching orders. You love God above all else. Didn't He say in Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, that the greatest single commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And not only that, the second commandment to it is love your neighbor as yourself. And so at that point, it doesn't typically take very long for a visitor or even someone else to gain a sense as to whether or not that really is an important attribute to those people gathering there. Are they more unloving or are they motivated by those attributes of love that you read about in the New Testament. But not only that, let's take it a step further. This attribute of love for God, this consideration of love for Jesus Christ, what about love for one another? You know, the church is a family, isn't it? In fact, it's often identified that way and spoken of in those very terms and tones. And so with regard to a family, how often are you and I amazed when we see a particular physical family and those brothers and those sisters and those parents, they are willing to sacrifice for each other. They're willing to go to great lengths of involvement for one another. What about the family of God? Is there anything like that that is to be observed and appreciated? In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, That which is in fact important before God is faith which works by love. You and I would say that there's no doubt that faith is vital. It's important and you can't be saved without it. Hebrews 11 verse 6. But that faith must operate upon the principle of and by the character of love. Have you ever given thought to 1 Peter 1.22? Near the close of that opening chapter, we find this interesting statement. Peter said, "...seeing ye have purified your souls by obeying the truth..." Through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another fervently. Twice in the span of a few words, he insisted upon and highlighted this reality of love for the brethren, love for one another. And that would certainly include love for the lost, love for the souls of individuals. How are you and I doing at this? When you and I talk to other people, and may I say that the things you and I say will leave an indelible imprint in the mind of other people about this congregation. When we speak to our neighbors, our acquaintances, our friends, our co-workers and otherwise, do we leave in their mind a bad taste about the Pippin Church of Christ? Well, here's he's talking about the people. He obviously doesn't think too much of them, runs them down, calls them scandals and rascals, and really has nothing good to say about them. Why would I ever want to go there? If that's the kind of impression we're leaving in the mind of other people, are we planting a seed of unloving character? Sure we are. Notice one of the last things on that slide. In 1 John 3, verse number 11, as, Paul, as rather John discussed this matter of love, he pointed out to those brethren on that occasion, the insistence upon this truth, love one another. May we always thrill at the thought of this, never in fact desiring to appreciate any less. As often as it's been noted, it's still worth repeating. 
you and I make it to heaven, the very people that we expect to be there with are sitting in this room. The very ones that we expect to be spending all of eternity with are the very people in this room. If we can't get along with them here, if we don't love them here, what makes us think we'll love them there? It is something to seriously consider, isn't it? But look at point number two. What else would be a hindrance to church growth? I've entitled this one simply lack of initiative. I stated this earlier. Church growth is not going to happen accidentally. It won't just bubble out of nowhere. There requires a plan of action, a working toward that eventuality. And therefore, you and I can again ask that matter personally as well as congregationally. I invited you to begin that with the following verse. You might appreciate in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and following. Greg read that just a moment ago. Let me invite you to appreciate a couple of words as I emphasize them. I have planted, Paul wrote, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And just as surely as we anticipate that all increase ultimately comes from God, did you know what preceded it? Paul planted. You and I know well what's involved in planting. I know this isn't the spring of the year, and so I understand this was six months or more ago at this point, but you and I, you got to get the soil ready. requires work. Removing rocks and stumps and debris, and you till that soil, you make sure it's ready so that when the seed's planted, that things will proceed in an orderly fashion. So when Paul says he planted, there was work involved here. There was a considered initiative. Not only that, it says Apollos watered. There was an ongoing, continual development of providing the nutrients and necessary matters. One more time, what about you and I? Are we just sort of floating along with a status quo? Somewhat taking it just as it has always been. Or do we really have a personal plan, a desire for a compelling motivation toward that desire for personal growth, as well as the initiative that goes with the growth period? Perhaps another verse is this one. In Acts 13, verses 1 and following, we'll not read a great deal of that particular chapter, but you might recall there was the church at Antioch. They took upon themselves to send some missionaries to foreign places. Now, that was back in the day when travel was challenging and difficult, and yet this church in Antioch blazed in a very dramatic fashion the gospel across the Roman Empire. But be impressed, they chose out several men and charged them with this work. They had a plan. The thought of a plan, it's well been said that those who fail to plan, plan to fail. What about you and I personally? Are we making growth a priority? What about we as a congregation? Are we making the consideration of this a priority? One last thing about that point. In Proverbs 29, it is there said, in regard to the people perishing, it says, where there's no vision. Where there's no vision. Do you and I have a vision? 
We here at the congregation, of course, we make available times for improvement and study. There's even ladies' Bible class and other things. Are we availing ourselves to, in fact, make the most out of these things? And are we encouraging by way of a personal plan and, and initiative? We'll have some more to say about this when we come to a later point in the lesson. But let's go ahead and look at point number three. In addition to these two, what else is a hindrance to the growth of a congregation? I've entitled this one a combination of entertainment mentality and selfishness. The religious world is, of course, awash this day and time with the consideration surrounding entertainment. I might say that you and I in the church must, we must always remain on guard relative to that. It can seep into our thinking so easily. Every article I've ever read, as it describes, this is what you need to do to encourage church growth. This is what you need to do to enhance the likelihood of it without fail. Every one of them will say things like, organize your music and worship in a way that satisfies the hearer. Organize your lessons and your preaching capacities in such a way that you maximize personal satisfaction. There's no need for me to go on in that list. That is not the way to do it. Worship is not about me and it isn't about you. Worship is about God. It always has been and if done rightly, it always will be. The word worship literally means acts of reverence directed to God. And therefore, we must ever keep the forefront of things, not about ourselves, but about serving Him. And that not only has a lesson for our worship, of course, but it also has a great deal to do with our ordinary aspect of life. And that's why I include selfishness in this. You and I, of course, are thrilled at the thought that God takes care of our needs, but doesn't He insist, Philippians 2 verse 3, that you look upon the needs of others. You're aware of their challenges, their difficulties, and of course, in the ways that you can, you offer possibilities for assistance. I've asked you to consider this verse as well. In John chapter 6 verse 63, Jesus had just preached a very hard sermon. You know, there are some who often don't think Jesus ever preached anything but feel good and love each other. And no doubt He did insist upon that, but that was a lesson in which He said, If you don't eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any life in you. Now those who heard that lesson, they were confused, but they understood the power of it and they... Some of them turned and walked no more with Him. That was just too hard a lesson for them to take. Jesus, in fact, addressed the disciples, Will you also go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John 6, verses 66 to 68. No wonder in light of that point, notice, the Lord insisted upon one's connection to the matter of truth. But it wasn't about something selfish. It is with that in mind, let's look at the fourth hindrance. The last point before we leap into the second part of the lesson. This fourth hindrance I've entitled this. It's an issue in priority. 
you and I typically are very good as we contemplate the significance of priorities. We, in fact, highlight that there are times in life when it's just not the right time to do certain things. It's the right time to do other things. The typical family, for example... When it's a school day morning, you know how frantic it's, it can sometimes be. The, the kids, perhaps they've gotten up a bit late. There's breakfast to be had. There's clothes to get on. The bus is about to come. That's not the time to be cleaning underneath the refrigerator. It's not to say cleaning under the refrigerator is unimportant, but there's another time and place for that. At that time, the children need to be getting ready for school, and the adults have got to get ready for work. We know about priorities. And come Sunday morning, our priority is to be at the services of the church. In fact, we wouldn't be anywhere else. We, in fact, love a place like this, and we want to be where those who love the Lord. But what about all the other things in our service, our daily life to God? I've asked you to think about priority very briefly like this. Jesus forever settled this point. In Matthew 6, verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. I've got a question for myself, and I've got a question for you. Is your priority and mine, is number one on the list, serving Jesus Christ? If it isn't, right there's the problem. Right there's the problem. There will be no personal growth, nor will there be congregational growth, at least as far as my part of it, if the Lord Jesus Christ is not number one. Jesus, in fact, settled that issue on that occasion. And how many other times did He insist upon that principle in the lives of His disciples and in the lives of those that be His followers? Didn't He say in Luke chapter 14, If you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love brother or sister, son or daughter, more than me, you're not worthy of me. Now that was a hard saying then, and it's no less hard now. But doesn't it insist upon you and I are called out individuals and we're different. We're just not like those in the world. Priority number one. As we've looked at these four elements so far, every one of them no doubt could be a tremendous obstacle, hindrance to spiritual growth both individually and, of course, congregationally. Where do I fit into that? And what about you? Every one of us must be honest. As we transition to the next part of the lesson, we're going to turn it over to the positive side. Here are some things that are required for growth. Let's see how we're doing at these as well. Number one. Although we have mentioned it a time or two today, now it's time to put it center stage. An absolute commitment to the text of this book. I mentioned it a moment ago in light of this entertainment mentality that has engulfed the religious world of our day. That's why there are mega churches. These preachers and these individuals, there are those who have structured, and if you read their books, they'll tell you they did this. Several years ago, there's a Saddleback Church in California. It is one of the largest churches in Christendom. Somewhat over 25,000 members. The gentleman who pastors it, 
And that's the way why he would refer to himself. It's not a church of Christ. Don't misunderstand anything I'm saying about this. He wrote a book about how they built that church. And in that book, he frankly admitted, we went out to the community and we polled them. Why do you not go to church services? And what could be done to encourage your growth and encourage your attendance? And they said things like, I want uplifting music that I like. And I want services that do not make me feel guilty. And I don't want to have to pay money. And so that pastor said, that's exactly what we did. We structured that service and everything about it to what they wanted. Now I'm telling you, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. God is not in the business of entertainment. And He's not in the business of making the church about you and me. We didn't die for it. Jesus did. It belongs exclusively to Him. He's its head, Colossians 1.18. He dictates what it's to be and what it's not to be. We never, to please Him, will make the music what we want, make the services the way we want them, and anything else about the church. But rather, we're going to lift high the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Didn't Jesus say, The words that I speak unto thee, they are spirit, and they are life. John 6, verse 63. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. O how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119, verse 97. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Psalm 119, verse 140. As the Word of God highlights those thoughts to us, consider this point with me. Paul made this statement, and it's probably the most well-known statement in the books of First or Second Peter, or First or Second Timothy. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And note verse 17: that the man of God might be perfect. Do you want to be perfect? Do I want to be? That means complete, entire, lacking nothing. It all comes from this book. The Word of God, of course, continues to stand, and it shall stand until time shall be no more. 1 Peter 1.25 We have to have an uncompromising, unwavering commitment to the Bible and its precepts in every way. That is what will make growth. That positive statement then brings me to this passage. In John 12, 48, didn't Jesus say, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken. The same shall judge him in the last day. There's coming a monumental occasion, a colossal event, in which you and I shall stand open before the word of God. And Jesus is going to use its precepts to judge your life and mine. Oh, how wonderful the Bible is. Do I have an unwavering commitment to it? You realize there will be no substantial growth without it. Now, you'll already notice I'm talking about genuine, real growth. Those mega churches, there's growth there, all right. But it's not eternal growth, it's meaningful. It's not growth that'll lead people to heaven. You and I want genuine growth like we read about in Acts. Those folks were committed to the Word. They went everywhere preaching the Word, Acts 8 verse 4. 
It is with that thought in mind. Let's close that point and highlight then a failure connected to this one. What if I'm not committed to the Word? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, the last three verses of that chapter, the Hebrew writer pointed out, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong may belong to them that are full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Here were some individuals, and the Hebrew writer rather directly said, you ought to have been more mature than this. You haven't grown. You haven't exercised yourself in light of the Word of God. Are you and I exercising daily? Are we exercising in this way for God? You'll notice that this positive thing must be a part of our life. Let's look at the second one. What else is a strong element required for a growing church? I've stated it like this one. Appropriately strong leadership. You and I know very well in every element in society in which God has, of course, spoken... He has put in place appropriate leadership. Governments, Romans 13, verses 1 and following. In the family, it's the man, it's the father. In the church, there must be appropriate leadership. Strong leadership. Men with the vision we've spoken of today and with the mindset of uncompromising commitment and fidelity to the Word who can lead us in that direction in that particular appreciation. Look at some of these considerations with me. You and I know what God's plan is for this. It wasn't left for our consideration. Elders. In Acts 14, 22, on that first missionary journey when Paul and Barnabas were traveling about, it was that occasion when they appointed elders in every city. It was time to put in place those men to lead those congregations. To that, let's add Titus 1 verse 5. There, in the city of Ephesus, Paul in writing to Timothy said, I want you to appoint elders in every church. You might take note that a powerful consideration took place as leadership was put in place. Today, we still know God's plan is the best. For that reason, let's add these thoughts. Elders are spoken of with a number of descriptive terms, one of which is a shepherd. Elders are called shepherds, not only in Acts 20, but also in 1 Peter 5. And you and I know what a shepherd does. There are sheep under the care of that shepherd. And that shepherd leads them in Psalm 23 to green pastures, to still waters, and in such a way that the soul is restored. But those shepherds, of course, serve a powerful role. They ensure the safety of the sheep. They keep the wolves at bay. They, of course, strive to carry out this thing spoken of in Acts 20, 28. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. We certainly can be thankful for faithful elders. 
But we notice their plan, their strong leadership is a part of these scriptural presentations. Doesn't it make sense then that a congregation without the visionaries of those men who are the leaders this way, then growth is not going to be likely. Certainly growth as powerful as it could be. One last thing about that point. These elders watch for our souls. They're going to have to give account on the day of judgment to the means whereby they've watched with care and concern and consideration about those precious souls under their tutelage and under their leadership. And therefore, we must obey them. We're commanded to. That strong leadership brings us perhaps to reflect on Ezekiel 34. That chapter, among all the others in the Old Testament, among the 929 Old Testament chapters, speaks about the failure of the shepherds in Israel. And what happened when those failures happened? And, oh, what a great lesson that is to consider. Well, what about the shepherds of the New Testament? That Old Testament chapter reflects upon the sad consequences of if there's failure in the New Testament shepherds too. Point number three, let me suggest that there's another aspect that must be included in the lives of those who have an interest in the kind of growth we're discussing today. Prayer. Understanding that we, of course, make petition to one far greater than we, who isn't limited by the circumstances of this life, who's infinitely wise, who's infinitely understanding, and who is able to see the future just as clearly as he knows the past. We thus are earnest and often and frequent in prayer. In Luke 18, 1, Jesus admonished His followers, Pray that ye faint not. How often do you and I need to be concerned about the devil surrounding us? How often do you need to be worried about the kind of chicanery and the cleverness with which He brings before you and me? Isn't it always? He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom He may devour. And I'm not always wise enough to know His whereabouts. We need to pray that God will open our eyes. That we'll be aware of His ploys and His cleverness. And that we shall be sufficiently equipped with the Word of God to overwhelm Him. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we read, There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God's faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. May you and I pray that God will open our eyes to see the ways of escape. You know it's always there, but what if I'm not knowledgeable enough of the Bible to see it? That isn't God's fault. That's mine. May you and I pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Didn't Jesus rise up early in Mark 1, 35 and go out a great while before day and pray? How often do you and I pray? Infrequently or frequently? You know, we wish to be close to God. We love Him. We're thankful for what He did for us. How often do we talk to Him? He talks to us through His Word. We have the privilege of talking to Him in prayer. Do we avail ourselves of that luxury, that privilege, that power? There is power in prayer. For doesn't it say in James 5.16, the effectual, fervent, 
prayer of a righteous man availeth much. May you and I then be earnest in prayer. The fourth and final point of this second part of the lesson. The centerpiece of Jesus Christ. I've mentioned it a couple of times during the course of the lesson. Service to God is not primarily about me. And it isn't primarily about you. We're privileged and blessed to be able to do it. But we, of course, longingly desire to serve King Jesus. He died for us. He shed blood for us. He said, I'll take you to heaven if you'll follow me. Revelation 14, 4, John 14, 1 and following. And therefore, we must make Him the centerpiece. In Colossians 3, 17, it still says, Whatever you do in word or deed. We sang that song earlier today. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God and Father by Him. We have to have His authority for what we do. As you and I develop that point, doesn't it take us right back to the church at Corinth? Here was a congregation who was in this very progressive city, but that didn't matter. The old paths are what they needed. And that's what we still need. The old paths taught by Jesus Christ, the gospel based on Him. Those old paths. In principle, you and I remember the text of Jeremiah 6 verse 16. Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where is the good way and walk therein and ye shall find rest for your souls. If you and I want the rest, the attachment that comes with Christ... It's those old Jerusalem paths. The old paths of the gospel has to be our focus. No wonder in light of those things and in light of those observations, I would ask you to close this slide and this lesson with another part in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, one of the failures that the church in Colossae was struggling with was they were departing from Christ and substituting other things in His place. Paul said, you mustn't do that. For if you do, you've left the head. Can you imagine how ludicrous it looks to have a body without the head? You see, if you and I leave Christ behind, we've left the head. Because He's the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. Today, we've studied at least some of the elements of spiritual growth. We looked at four hindrances, and now we've looked at four positive things, four motivations for, four encouragements to growth, not only individually, but congregationally. How are each of us doing at these? Am I a part of the problem, or am I suffering beneath some of the first four things we described, or... Am I perhaps longing for and looking to incorporate in an even better way the last four we've described? It's time for self-examination for each of us. Jesus is calling. He's pleading with us. He wants us to be faithful servants of His. There could be one or more in this audience today. Maybe you've never become a Christian. You realize that your salvation hinges on your obedience to Jesus. I can't take you to heaven and no other man can, but Jesus can. For you see, He's already gone there and He said, If you'll follow me whithersoever I've gone, then you'll be where I am. And that's heaven. If today you'd like to become a Christian, 
may I insist that you think with urgency about the moment. You aren't promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. That plan of salvation requires that you do this. Believe in Jesus as the absolute Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Messiah, the promised Son of God. And then submit yourself to immersion in water. We call it baptism for the remission of sins. You'll rise from that watery grave with all sins forgiven. You'll be clean and pure like snow. May I say that once you begin that journey of walking then, oh, you'll stumble, you'll fall, you'll make your mistakes in judgment and error. If you need to come back before this group making confession of them today, we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. You must confess those errors known publicly. You must, in fact, repent of them. But when you do, God's promised through Christ to forgive you. If we can help you today in either of these ways, We'd be delighted to help now while together we stand and sing.